0: Konnichiwa, how good day, and welcome to another episode of Fully Scored, episode 18 to be precise. Later in today's episode we're going to be once again joined by Richard Phillips who's going to be taking us through the second part of the analysis on Eric Ball's The Eternal Presence. If you haven't heard the first part of the analysis, it might be useful to go and listen to our last episode, episode 17, where we set the scene and look at the first movement. But before we do that, it gives me great pleasure to welcome our guest onto today's podcast podcast. Our guest today is at the absolute forefront of music writing for the Salvation Army and is a real innovative composer and also works as a senior music producer for the USA Eastern Territory. I'm of course talking about Dorothy Gates. Throughout the interview, we chat to Dorothy a bit about her growing up in Northern Ireland and her introductions to Salvation Army music making, a bit about her compositions and compositional process And also a bit about what she does in New York now with the New York staff band and in her role as senior music producer there. We were also joined momentarily by a very special guest, Dorothy's Dog, who came to say hello and I should just mention is a big fan of Fully Scored. As always, I do hope that you enjoyed today's episode. Now it's time to head over to our interview. Well, thank you as much, Dorothy, for joining us today on uh, Fully Scored. Thank you for giving up your time.
1: Thank you. Thank you for having me. Thank you for asking. It's a pleasure.
0: And so over the next few uh, moments, we're going to be chatting a little bit about your life, your trombone playing, and of course, your compositions. And uh, really looking forward to sort of picking your brains on a few different things as we chat. My first question for you, going to go back in history a little bit. Uh, can you tell us a bit about where you were born and what your first connections with the Salvation Army were?
1: Well, I was born in Belfast in Northern Ireland, and um, my mom and dad were officers at the time. They were assurance officers. They were stationed in, in Northern Ireland when I was, yeah, obviously when I was born. <laughs> um, and I can't remember what corps it was. I just, you know, know from them. But yes, obviously connected to the army at a very early age through them.
0: Great. And uh, where were the first sort of musical interactions you had? Were they from an earlier age or did they come sort of later in your teenage years?
1: No, they were early. Um, yeah, when you're an officer's kid, you sort of turn into the Von Trapp family singers, you know, when the parents take you wherever specialing. And so even as a wee kid, I remember singing outside I'm feeling old and grey and things like that even though I was like four years old or something stupid <laughs> you know um so yeah early recollections with mom and dad mom and mom played piano and and sang and dad played trombone
0: and uh, you're a trombonist as well following suit uh, did you start off on the trombone or did you start off on a different brass instrument and uh, slowly turn to the dark side
1: no I always was in the dark side uh, <laughs> <laughs> um I think My dad, he practiced a lot. He was studying for his, you know, his letters, LTCL and all those sorts of things. And um, so he would be practicing every night. And it got to be that I wouldn't go to bed until I got to play a note out of dad's trombone. Um, At least that's what my mom and dad have told me over the years. And uh, so it was always the trombone for me. I started on the trombone. My dad started me. And then, as you might imagine, that's sort of went downhill really quickly for father and daughter to be uh, teaching each other. So, (laughs) oh, him teaching me.
0: (laughs) And uh, other than your parents, were there any other sort of real uh, people in your life that had a real musical influence on you?
1: David Catherwood and and Tom Norton, uh, whitey band leaders at Belfast Temple obviously with david it was a sort of a twofold thing that the influence of because he was at queens university at the time studying so he was writing things and we were singing them and in singing company and playing them in the wahui band and so i just started to love his harmonies um, and just the sounds that he was making just were fascinating to me they're just really beautiful
0: fantastic and uh, so my next question we will talk about your composition a bit more in depth later in the interview but uh, when did your interest first get piqued in composition was it around the same time that you were starting the trombone or did that come later
1: it came later um it actually I I think it probably came in early teenage years um I wasn't very talkative I, I find uh conversing like this sort of like a little uncomfortable and so a way for me to get feelings out whenever i you know got dumped by a boyfriend or whatever <laughs> i'd turn to the piano um and just start playing away whatever and then start writing songs but i think the first thing i actually did was a trombone quartet um on knowing my feelings um, for david and mill and david mccauley and myself we were in the white band together and we, we did this little trombone quartet and that yeah that was the first thing i arranged
0: so uh, was your ultimate goal to have a career in music or was there a particular moment where that sort of sparked into your mind that, oh, you know, this is something that you want to do?
1: I think it, it became very obvious to me when we were doing, you know, picking A-levels actually, uh, based on your level results, <laughs> um, that there was really only two things, things—well, three things I was sort of all right at. And that was music, French and art. And, uh, those were the days where you could uh, could do as little as 2A levels or you could do as many as four if you're a real brainiac. I started out with three and discovered that the French was really getting quite taxing so I dropped French and just did music and art and consequently I I had no idea which of the two I would do. I, I loved them both and I applied to art college and I applied to university for music and I got into both and so I still had to make the decision. I was kind of hoping the decision would be made for me, but I had to make the decision and, and ultimately went with the music. And uh, do you still sort of paint
0: or was that not your specialism <laughs> art in art? Was it sculpture or do you- No, sort of... it, was, it
1: was painting. Um, haven't painted uh, probably in a good 10 years, but you never know, might wear a head again. Yeah.
0: <laughs> <laughs> So you went on to study music then. Can you tell us a little bit about that time studying and uh, you know, what, what that experience was like and some of the key things that you picked up during that time?
1: I went to Queen's University in Belfast and studied composition with Kevin Volans, who's a South African composer. He brought writing alive for me in a way that no one up to that point really had his music was so fresh and new to me and it was so rhythmic and so he had us study um stravinsky and stockhausen and, and various other people rhythm became something that i developed a fascination for and i put that down down to him
0: so now you're based out in new york perhaps you could tell us a little bit about uh you know how you came to be journeying across the pond and and when
1: that was So at the end of Queen's, I won a scholarship to attend the University of Michigan for a year as an exchange student in composition. Well, when I was over, I was like, this would be a really good place to do my master's degree. I'd really like to do that. So I applied for the composition um, and then changed my mind, decided to do trombone instead. I'd already started a relationship with my now husband, Mark. We... Decided we were going to get married. And I went to Nebraska, got a job as the Division of Music Director in Nebraska, had no idea where that was. Being a kid from the UK, you know, you think everything is the same size as the UK and fits into that when you see it on a page, you know. So um, I had to ask Mark where Nebraska was. And uh, he told me, and I was, I was a little shocked, but it was too late. So I accepted the job. So uh, moved to Nebraska. Mark followed me, we got married. And then we went home for a blessing and discovered that uh, flying from Nebraska back then to Belfast, Northern Ireland. We had to fly from Nebraska to Chicago, Chicago to Newark, Newark to London, London to Belfast. And about 30 hours later, you arrive in Belfast. And it's like, we're never doing that again. (laughs) So I said to Mark, I need for my own sanity to be closer on the East Coast so that it's an easier flight home to my family. So actually, God provided with that. One of my friends from Omaha took a job in Washington, D.C. as uh, the plan giving director. And he joined the National Capital Band. And he texted me in the middle of a camp one summer and said, hey, do you fancy coming to Washington, D.C.? They need a trombone. And um, they said that, you know, that helped me find a job and blah, blah, blah. And I was like, well, that sounds like a lot of fun. And that's on the East Coast. And so then we moved to Washington. That all worked out. After about nine years in Washington, this job became available in um, New York. And I remember talking to Aaron Vanderweel because he was asking me to write a piece for a journal or something. And I said to him, so that job, is it still open? Have you filled it yet? And he said, no. He says, why are you interested? And I said, yeah, I think it would be actually. I said, but, you know, I don't know what the requirements are. He says, here, I'll talk to Ron. So he put me through to Ron and the rest is history.
0: Fantastic stuff. I'm not 100% sure if I could uh, point to Nebraska on a map, actually. (laughs) That's good to know. (laughs) (laughs) Better do some research. (laughs) Um, So, uh, as you sort of alluded to now, you're working uh, as part of the USA Eastern Territories Music Department. Uh, Could you tell us a little bit about your day-to-day role there and uh, what sort of activities it involves?
1: Yes, my actual title is, let me see if I can get this right, Senior Music Producer, which is basically a mixture of being an editor and a writer. So I edit all the publications for our territory um, and our catalog, and I write music for the territory, um, you know, commissioning events and whatnot, and also for the staff band or staff songsters or anything else that we have going on day to day, it's it's quite a mixture, a lot of communication, um, but also I'd say probably more editing um, when the publications are right in production. And then I just have to sort of fit the writing in around it it, wherever I can, whether it's at home at night or wherever. Now,
0: next question. What's Hmm. the best thing about living in New York?
1: well New York City itself is very exciting and the pace there as if you've been over you just know it's it's very probably similar to London very fast paced um lots to see lots to do um lots of amazing restaurants and yeah I'm a bit of a a foodie in that I love food not a foodie as in I'm an expert on you know all the restaurants in town but so kind of like I like that and just being here, it, you sort of feel like you're on the pulse, on the pulse of like the East Coast sort of music scene, um, which both inside and outside of the army, you know, it sort of feels like that, um, which is very, it's very exciting, but it, it sort of, it helps, it helps you, you know, it inspires you. So I think that, for me, it's just a bit of a mixture.
0: Excellent. And uh, what did you teach your dog to sing?
1: Mm. uh, yeah I think he came on into puppyhood knowing exactly how to hire
0: great career on tenor lined up for him I think oh I think so (laughs) so it'd be very remiss of us to have you on the podcast and not to speak about your composition and your thoughts on composition also so let's go back a little bit in history again can you remember what your first ever published piece was?
1: yeah um, it was a singing company piece published in the USA South uh, Territory, and it was called uh, His Love, Our Love. That was the first.
0: Fantastic. And did you know from the moment that you had that piece published that you were going to have an extensive library of music published under your name? Or uh, did you sort of think, oh, that, that's a one-off piece, you know, see what happens next? Yeah.
1: Um, I didn't think it was a one-off but I certainly did not think I'd go on and have you know many more pieces published I just thought well let's write another one (laughs) that's all I thought.
0: So could you tell us a little bit more about your compositional process when you have an idea uh, how do you approach it do you go straight into writing it down on manuscript or do you go to the piano and try a few things out?
1: Um, Well when I when something sort of comes into my head, um, depending on where I am, I will write it down um, on a napkin or wherever else I happen to be at the time. Um, And yeah, I pretty much take that. And then I would still try to stay away from the piano for a while and work out more motifs from it and even try to develop it and see if this little snippet is actually a real idea or something else. and then I'll go to the piano and start filling around with well, wow, what does that sound like and all that sort of stuff. Um, but I suppose my the real process is more um, from a standpoint of being asked to write something um, on a specific sort of you know piece. Let's say, for instance, you know, um, on Exodus um and what i would have to do with that is actually read exodus and for aaron Vanderwill, way back in the beginning when i moved to new york he asked me to write him a euphonium solo um shadowed and i had no clue what to do for him because i didn't know Aaron that well he was a nice guy but i just started working with him and so we were sort of just acquaintances really i suppose and so i said to him um what's your favorite scripture and he gave me his favorite scripture which was psalm 139 the first 10 or 11 verses and so i read that and then i wrote a melody based on the words of the first couple of verses for that and then i started working on um a piece for him so that's sort of how i work
0: excellent and now um any musician will know that unfortunately there is a huge imbalance uh, in the, the ratio of male to female composers uh, historically in sort of classical music but, and in many ways as well Salvation Army music making. Do you have any sort of theories why this is the case and how going forwards we can tackle this imbalance and uh, encourage female composers uh, in the Salvation Army and further afield?
1: Well, I think you hit the nail on the head in the last sentence. I think we have to encourage everyone, male, female alike, um, that show some sort of aptitude or an interest in writing. Um, And that might mean, you know, if you've got some little kid or two little kids, a boy and a girl in your core who are showing an interest and messing around with him tunes, that you have them both do something simple for the YP band as opposed to picking one over the other and that sort of thing. I think that's a, a good place to start. And then um, I think the reason is probably as basic as as family. Um, you know, I think throughout history the role of you know woman in the home is you know mother. And I think once women start having children and become mothers, they take on different responsibilities. Um, and rightly so, um, I'm in a, a rather unique, perhaps a little unfortunate situation where we weren't able to have children. So we don't have that um, distraction <laughs> or that responsibility. Um, so I know for some of my friends who do have that, they barely find, you know, they find it hard to, to carve out time for themselves, let alone carve out time for you know what is really a glorified hobby in some cases you know so uh, i think that's probably how it got to be where it maybe got to be at the say let's say the 20th century but going forward from there to now and even going forward from here i i think it's more based on choice you know um, so i think we have to be very um, proactive in choosing Okay, if I'm putting a program together, then I choose a program that will have at least, you know, one woman represented. And there's several lady writers out there. I think of Chelsea Pascoe. I think of people outside the Salvation Army, Leslie and Elizabeth Rom and um, Lucy Pankhurst. And uh, there's there's a lot more available um, in the brass band genre for, for with women composers than there used to be. Um, so I think it's just a case of making a a choice well I'm going to program a one piece because and then you're being all inclusive you know in my mind I mean maybe it's too simple but
0: (laughs) and uh, in in your career as a composer have you ever felt that you've um, been prejudiced as being a female composer or have you been fortunate enough that that's never been an issue
1: I think in some cases I've experienced what I thought might be but I try not to focus on that I think to focus on that sort of lessens the craft that you have and making something about you know yourself or your gender um, takes away from who you are as a Christian and who you are as a person and so I try not to go down that road Um, I won't say the road doesn't exist but I, I try not to go down it
0: And uh, talking about inspiring and encouraging that next generation is there any um, advice that you'd give to any composers out there that want to you know write like Dorothy Gates?
1: I'd say study and perhaps study with Kevin Volans, um, which is probably impossible (laughs) but I'd say you know just make the most of any opportunity that comes your way. Um, We're all different and God places us in different parts of his vineyard for a reason and so my history is not going to be somebody else's history. And it's, it's your history and your journey that, that speak into your writing and who you are. And that's what makes your voice a, a unique and individual. And, and um, I, I, I'd say study like crazy, if that be your bent, if you, that's what you want to do and take the most of every opportunity that comes your way.
0: Fantastic, wise advice indeed. Now in a later episode we'll have you on to do an analysis in detail of one of your pieces but I just want to talk to you briefly about a real significant piece in your output over the last few years and a real significant piece for Salvation Army bands in general uh, written for the New York Staff Band, The Glory of Jehovah. Could you tell us a little bit about how you came to write this epic for Brass Band and perhaps a bit about the story and what inspired it?
1: Yes um, this came about um, we were actually uh, at a composers forum in Chicago um, for the whole nation um, and um, my boss and bandmaster uh, Derek Lance um, was with me for this event and uh, in one of the breaks he had this idea he said I'd really love you to write a symphony for brass Um, and I said well I don't know if anyone's actually going to listen to a symphony for brass because that's very long for one thing. Um, And he said, no, no, we we don't have to go, you know, that long, but like maybe 20, 25 minutes. And I still thought that was just a bit too long, but, uh, you know, you do what you're going to do. I need a, a theme. I need an idea. I need a grand idea. And this grand idea turned into the book of Exodus. So the journey began and it was just sort of going through Like I said earlier, I had to read the book. I couldn't just start writing, oh, I've got this idea for the Red Sea without actually having, you know, recently read the story of the Red Sea. And given that it was supposed to be about the whole entire book of Exodus, I had to really figure out, well, obviously I can't put everything in. I have to figure out what I can leave out um, and what will stay in. I read the book like several times and reached out to a few friends who are Old Testament scholars type people um, just to get their idea of what they thought the whole book was about. Um and to see if they would point me in the direction of any materials and whatnot other than the scriptures. I find myself falling in love with the the book of Exodus just because it's all about God's presence. Um, For me, having gone through it, it's about how he wanted to be with the children of Israel and and how he was with them, even in the horrible situation of enslavement, Um, all the way through to um, that fantastic moment when the tabernacle is built and the presence of god falls on moses you know and it, it's just yeah i'm getting goosebumps just thinking about it uh that's what inspired me that's what that's where the inspiration came so the, every movement there's five movements um and every movement is based on something about god's presence in the book does that give you a good overview
0: excellent yeah fantastic and anyone listening to this podcast that hasn't heard the piece of music I'd very much encourage you to listen to it. it's a fantastic work for band and uh, there's an interesting interview as well with yourself and Derek Lance on uh, YouTube (laughs) which I'd point people in the direction of too if they want to understand a bit more about the piece. Got a final few more serious questions before we move on to our quirky quickfire section. Uh, Is there a piece out of everything you've written that you're particularly proud of writing?
1: I I don't know. Um, I think I'm just proud when it all gets out of me onto paper and fascinated that it even gets out of me onto paper i think the the living god and the glory of jehovah are pieces that brought me closer to god um in the process even when i listen to them they make me feel closer to the lord so i i think that's a, a bit of a success for me maybe not necessarily for anybody who's listening but that that's what it is for me
0: And that leads perfectly into my next question. Uh, How does uh, writing music and how has it impacted your faith over the years?
1: Writing has become synonymous with my faith and with my devotional time. I feel like it's uh, almost communion in many ways. I'm not saying, you know, the Holy Spirit's singing melodies into my heart that I write down. I'm not saying that at all, but I'm saying that in those times, I feel closer to the Lord. and I feel the Spirit's presence on me when i'm in the depths of whatever i'm writing and even when i'm writing stuff that's not army they will have a greater deeper spiritual meaning than um, what they might look like on the surface Um, and that's that's just who i am
0: great well this brings us on to the final section of our interview the quirky quickfire section some of these questions are perhaps a little bit normal some of them are well a bit crazy first of these questions Who's your favourite Salvation Army composer? Wilfred Hayden. Have you got a favourite Salvation Army piece of music?
1: Just as I am.
0: And uh, have you got a favourite non-Salvationist composer? Stravinsky. What's your favourite passage of scripture?
1: Psalm 37, verse 4. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart.
0: And have you got a favourite book in the Bible?
1: No, It's Exodus.
0: Excellent. And Times Square or Liberty Island, which would you rather do a watercolour painting of?
1: Liberty Island.
0: If you could spend one week quarantine-free in any city around the world, where would you go? Belfast. Uh, have you got a favourite sport?
1: No. <laughs> <laughs>
0: Me neither. Uh, what's your <laughs> dream car?
1: Ooh, a Panther.
0: Okay. If you owned a restaurant that serves just one three course meal, what would those courses be?
1: All right. Let's see. Um, some kind of soup, a lovely roast chicken dish with roast potatoes, I think. Um, and desserts? Oh, Pavlova.
0: Nice. Making me hungry just thinking about it. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Very serious question now. Who would win in a wrestling match? The Michelin Man or Tony the Tiger?
1: Oh, I think Tony the Tiger, he drips through those rolls. <laughs> okay, I'm glad we've
0: uh, established that important question. Uh, now, this next question is backed by popular demand. If zoos operated like supermarkets, what animal would you purchase and why?
1: I would purchase anything on the perimeter that was uh, vegetarian. <laughs> I have no Monsters. idea. A lizard, I don't know. <laughs>
0: Okay, we'll take the lizard as the answer there. And uh, final question. If you could only eat one herb or spice the rest of your life, what one would it be? Curry. Nice. Excellent. Well, that brings our interview to a conclusion. Thank you ever so much once again for giving up your time to speak with us today. And I'm sure those listening will really enjoy hearing all those insights into your life and your music and your faith. Yes, thanks again, Dorothy, for giving up your time to join us. It was really great to speak to you, and we look forward to hearing an analysis from you in a future episode. Now, as I said at the beginning of the podcast, it's time for our second part of the analysis of Eric Ball's The Eternal Presence. Once again, I'm grateful to have been joined by Richard Phillips, who's going to talk us through the latter half of this piece. Just a quick reminder if you haven't heard the first part, of this analysis, jump back into our previous episode, episode 17, to hear our conversation uncovering the first movement of the piece there. Here's the second part of the analysis of Eric Ball's The Eternal Presence. So letter G, we move into our second movement, so to speak, of this piece, uh, entitled The Heart's Grief. And I believe this melody is an original melody of Eric Ball's and, uh, in my opinion, one of his most hauntingly beautiful tunes and uh, was published later, I think it was 1980, in the musical Salvationist as a standalone uh, vocal piece. And there's a wonderful recording of the King Singers singing this on their second choral essay CD, which I'd uh, recommend listening to if you enjoy this arrangement. But Richard, could you talk us through how uh, Eric Ball harmonises this tune and perhaps a little bit about, about the melody at G?
2: Interesting to note uh, that um, um, that he uses the words on the score again, uh, which is uh, which is good, and uh, he draws us uh, to this uh, to this melodic line, this very melancholy and solemn uh, um, tune that uh, uh, again takes us to a place where I was mentioning high trombones. Well, this tune goes up to a, a top beat and, uh, and a trombone play well really kind of sings in that area. Um, four trom- five trombones required. So you need a five trombone section if you want to play um, the purest version of this and uh, it's cued in the baritone um, if you don't have five. Mm-hmm. Um, but uh, yeah, here's, the, here's Eric's original tune, beautifully harmonised. Uh, nothing surprising here in terms of no outrageous harmonies. Um, it would be a standard harmony. Um, it's marked to be uh, conducted in two. It's, uh, it's a minimum beat uh, that allows the music um, to flow um, and not be encumbered by crotchet beats. Um, so there's a, there's a kind of a smoothness that's required um, in the presentation. this uh, legato and a connectivity. Um, Halfway through the tune uh, the horns and this is where I mentioned earlier this was coming uh, where the where the trombone does go up to a top beat the solar horn is doubling that and uh, they are like I said they are so well blended these two instruments that uh, you would barely you would barely hear the horn if it was done right. So it's a beautiful tune basses come in double B rather than an E-flat bass because of the depth and the warmth that uh, a double B has and uh, you can see there that the double B stays low and, and that's a good sign of um, solemnity, warmth uh, within the presentation of a tune um, so that's uh, that's another little technique that, uh, that Eric uses there
0: Of the music changes once again. Above the score is marked "Appassionato a e sostenuto." Uh, can you talk <laughs> us through this section here? Oh
2: this is, i love this section to conduct. It's—it's oh, it's fantastic. Um, so it's the same tune; it's a repeat of the tune, but the way he's scored it: um, solo cornets up high, uh, first baritone is 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 up there, and. Uh, it's got this this counter melody that is uh, very carefully articulated, and uh, in this articulation, it it brings an intensity. So when you have when you have two quavers slurred, followed by two quavers slurred, uh, da 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 da, uh, you can always highlight that slur by shortening the quaver, the second quaver, and that's what I was asking. Uh, the bands to do when I was when I was conducting it, and it, it does have a more uh, aggressive feel, and it brings a bit more passion to the whole thing. Um, but the the range is the is the is the key here. Uh, the high solo cornets, high baritone, uh, middle range for uh, uh, horn and baritone, back row cornets. So they've got uh, a good kind of range of the of the tune here. Uh, which they can really push through. Um, so you've got a good range for the bad, for the band doing the accompaniment, an intense range for the for the uh, counter melody here. And uh, again, Eric's scoring is immaculate, and um, it's fantastic. And you can really kind of build the music and shape the music as you wish here. Um, and again, the same thing. There is a high point. Uh, this is the last, starting the last three bars of page 35. Um, that is the high point where the uh, where the flugel on the second corner came in before. So again, a point to, uh, to bring out there. The whole music is leading to that middle few bars before again it uh, begins to subside. Um, uh, bars before I. So... And again, there's a big shaping moment for the cornets. Uh, the second bar of page 36, that uh, A natural to the G. A beautiful moment. And uh, because again, it's, it's tense. The, uh, the A natural is not part of the, um, of the G minor chord, uh, which we're, we're sitting on at that point. Um, so it's beautiful uh, suspension there. And uh, lovely shape to that. And so there's a there's a real kind of uh, yearning here for maybe wanting to uh, to tread a better path from the subject the um, when we hit letter I uh, we're still getting long by imprisoned spirit uh, the that kind of reference to those words uh, are prevalent in the flugelhorn, horn solar horn and then first horn just at the end there um just to just to remind us that the conversion has not yet been completed but a uh, lovely moment uh, lovely shape beautiful tune and uh, really descriptive of how the subject is grieving um at, the, at this
0: time in the music absolutely beautiful movement that some stunning music oh, yes. and, uh, you're absolutely right about the range now just looking through the score i haven't noticed a the first cornet part and the flugelhorn, both on top B-flats yeah. through in the middle there. Pretty, uh, Good, pretty unique.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> so, yep, yeah, as, as you said, then we have our third iteration of the uh, the ethereal theme. And uh, does this differ at all from the first two times that we've heard it?
2: Um, are you trying to... Tri- no, I don't think so. Well, it, it's the same as the first time, I do believe. But again, marked triple piano uh, and on a diminuendo so uh quadruple piano is the dynamic uh before we start the last movement which is that's Tchaikovsky dynamics uh, that's the kind of thing you'd see when you're playing Tchaikovsky
0: so the third movement uh tribulation and it says next to this uh here quotes the passage from scripture John sixteen thirty three. we start off with the basses and euphonians playing uh a rather jumpy melody it almost makes you feel a bit seasick looking at that uh, but could you talk us through what happens in this section and uh, what the meaning is behind the uh, title tribulation well the
2: the, word, the verse of scripture uh, is uh, is i have told you these things so that in me you may have peace in this world you will have trouble but take heart i have overcome the world and so this, this really um, is the, 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 the struggle of life. Um, and uh, so it's, it's interesting that it's uh, one in a bar. So yeah, you're right. It's, it's a very kind of uh, jumpy melody in terms of there's lots of, uh, of intervals here. Um, but what's important here is, um, is that this tempo absolutely stays rock solid. It's quite an aggressive tune. It's not. Uh, it's not written in step by step. It's, re- it's written with big intervals, which normally refers to uh, a sinful life, I suppose, in this instance. Um, so. That's what we're getting here, and, uh, and it's important that uh, the articulation is highlighted. Uh, and like I said before, when you've got slurs in the very first bar of this, up to the quaver, to just shorten that quaver a little, brings uh, a wider widens the gap, makes it a bit more uh, interesting and dynamic. Um, if you if you make the quavers too long, um, it closes up the gaps and the
0: the, the percussive effect of that tune um dissipates a little i see quite interesting that that waltz through through that section that we've just been talking about yeah. reminds me very much of the sort of whimsical waltz in uh, leslie condon's *The present age as well and the pieces right? are okay. around um, a very similar era which uh, yeah it's the,
2: same, it, it's the same it's the same effect desire effect there and uh, and even on a classical level you can hear dance macabre Sanson uh, in there which is the dance of the devil so it's, it's all kind of um, got this triplet uh, kind of slightly acute uh, feel to it and uh, you you're absolutely right it's the same feel in that uh, in Leslie's piece eric's piece here as as that and uh, it's a good medium to write uh, this you know the subject matter fits uh, fits well here the devil the devil is very very uh, present in triplet music so, Not not like a 4-4 smooth tune uh, that triplet likes. The devils like
0: triplets. (laughs) No, really interestingly, I I believe, I might be wrong here, but in uh, baroque music, especially the music of Handel, 3-4 was considered the most godly time, referring to the Trinity and three beats in a bar, so a lot of Handel's choruses has uh, been written in three. It's interesting how that changes over time. That
2: yeah, I, I guess yes. At the end of the day, <laughs> uh, <laughs> it's what you do in that time frame, isn't it? And yeah, uh, yeah I guess you know, uh, handle could could handle three, four, maybe uh, in a different way that yeah. than other people can. Um, of course, of course, every every composer is different. You get to K. And we have this trombone trio, uh, slightly menacing, but uh, the shaping of this uh, of this trombone trio is interesting. Whilst there are long notes in the third and fourth bars, that gives a uh, an arranging opportunity for something else to happen when the music is static. And that's a, that is a uh, quite a common compositional technique: is that when the tune is static, there's something else that goes in that place. And what Eric has done here, he's put a Call it trio um, arpeggio, uh, whilst the tune is hanging on a long note um, in the uh, in the trombones, and then he repeats that in the horns, um, just to add to the uh, intensity and the binding of the tune. He brings in the baritones and the euphoniums uh, halfway through this, and those kind of long notes uh, that are uh, very much. Uh, absolutely as long as they can be. Um, they bind this whole thing together. It makes it a more homogenous piece of music. So, letter L. The trio is repeated in the cornets, um, doubled in the trombones. And I said to you about these uh, these triplets. Here they are again in the uh, euphonium. You can hear the syncopation um, through the shape of those triplets so you have the first three triplets um descending the second three descending but it's in three four so the actual start of the second triplet down is on one and a half beats into the bar um so it creates its own syncopation Um, although it's not marked you'd say play as a triplet okay and that brings excitement it brings dynamic uh, interpretation to the piece although it's quiet Mark Piano can still get that excitement and again the same thing's happening it builds up again next dynamic four bars later Mezzo Piano uh, same uh, triplets coming on this time in the baritone and then we get through the horns same thing again the music is building the texture the harmonic texture is getting higher euphoniums baritones quite high uh, and, and then uh, horns quite high um, and so it's driving up to the massive moment at uh, letter M which is very exciting um, the triplet figure that uh, um, that is being now played in the solo coordinates is higher soprano as well um, again this, synco- this inbuilt syncopation against this tune makes it very exciting and uh, it's it's it portrays a kind of an overwhelming, all-consuming, um, there's no place for God here kind of feeling uh, within the subject. It winds down um, on a diminuendo. The pitch of the cellar it reduces, as does the euphonium. The, the, um, the accompaniment is less busy. All these techniques, I'm bringing the music down to uh, this muted cornet and trombone moment um, which is quite uh, memorable I've got to make sure this rhythm is really uh, absolutely solid here and it's aggressive and it's angry and it's not right with the world Um, and again we have these uh, muted trombone and cornets which means that they can blow as loud as they like and they love this They, they trombones and back row cornets can put their mute in and absolutely blow their brains out to try and get anything like the dynamic that is required here and, uh, and again it's a, good, it's a good rehearsal technique to try and uh, embrace that uh, aggressive in the sound and try and maintain rhythm, in-tuneness and all the rest of it, no lengths all the basics uh, have got to be retained, as well as trying to get everything uh, into the aggressiveness of that music. That leads us on to uh, letter N, where we get the original theme. This is the recapitulation of the of the movement, almost. And the basses, like the beginning, uh, have this uh, pointed tune, and uh, the the aggression is the accompaniment. And lo and behold, we're coming up to uh, the, Letter O, and uh, in the lead up to this, uh, we've got these syncopated triplets um, in a in a three-four time. Again, just breeding unrest all the time. And uh, there's a lovely moment just before O. You can rehearse um, these short notes in the corners of trouble And then this last one, that gap in there is sounds like an eternity, feels like an eternity. There's always people trying to rush in there. Uh, But uh, it's a fantastic uh, place to to rehearse band ensemble.
0: So letter O, um, amidst all this turmoil that we've just had, the anger and the aggression, we uh, hear in the solo cornet part this hark to the original melody, uh, Still Still With the coming back, and the music starts to transition. Uh, Could you talk us again through through how the music uh, changes from chaos to order
2: yeah this is uh, after this fantastic moment um, we get these still still with thee, and it's like it's like just just your father tapping you on the shoulder and saying look son you can you can throw a fitty you can you can shout and you can uh, I'm still here you know I'm still here I'm still looking after you and uh, there's there's a kind of a calmness about that and a reassurance about that and this is exactly what this what this poem this uh, this moment is a letter o we've still got those triplets going through in the first baritone it's still there so we're not completely uh consumed um by this calmness yet um and the trombone trio is still there but Overridden by this beautiful tune, steel steel with the and these words prevailing through this through this line. This is again. This is a good technique from Eric, that he's taken what I call syncopated quavers. He's he's put the same number of quavers in the bars, but what he's done is he's changed the shape. So there's a kind of a reduction of the of the aggressive syncopation to a smoothness in that line that it, that he uses to transition from uh, um, aggression to to you know a, a more smoother part of the music we're heading for submission we're heading for one with the spirit so again we get to the another transition is a slight accelerando here uh, the the music is far more linear now um, no gaps those those have gone um and in the, in the melodic line, and this is throwing the rhythm around between horns and cornets, uh, one note up or one note down, um, just building up to a high B flat in the solo cornets. Um, and again, it's words that you can apply still, still with it.
0: So, letter P, I believe, could be described as perhaps a coda in the structure of the piece, and I believe it's the first time that we hear the full iteration of that tune, still, still with the. And uh, if we look through the scoring, we've got triplets all around in the Glockenspiel and the upper cornet parts as well, ringing out a bit like uh, the bells, uh, celebrating bells, perhaps uh, a bit Muzak esque. Uh, there, could you talk us through though what happens uh, throughout this section of uh, absolute joy?
2: Yeah. Well, this is um, the moment in the piece where the aggression, the struggle in the mind that we had in the um, in the second movement, um, this is acceptance. This is pure acceptance. This is pure joy. This is a realization that the eternal presence is there, not as a uh, not as a something to fear, but something to embrace, something to welcome. Uh, something to support you uh, and a force for good has taken over your life at this moment. That's what this is. And you're right, the the, the Glockenspiel is a, a musical uh, development. Uh, when this was written in 1968, the drummers used to stand up. Uh, one played the bass drum, the other played the snare drum. And uh, a Glockenspiel was unusually, you know, addition to that uh, that section. Uh, and you're right, this is the... Uh, The only full presentation of the tune that appears in this piece. And when you think about it, it's the only time it can be included. It's the only time, because the words uh, that uh, are required here are So shall it be at last, in that bright morning, when the soul waketh and life's shadows flee. Oh, in that hour, fairer than daylight's dawning, shall rise the glorious thought i am with thee and so this moment of acceptance this moment of victory um, against evil uh, is all realized in this letter letter P. you have the tune in the trombones uh, you have a, a decorative this time a uh, triplet feel uh, that is reiterated in the glockenspiel but is much less prevalent than any time before so the strong uh, the, the strength is in the tune steel steel with the and it's a sign of it's a musical sign of that is stronger than the um than the the, the evil that is the triplets um and that's it's, it's scored in that way so brilliant scoring from from eric we hear the tune um, throughout its entirety as we said four bars before cue It's the, the melodic line is uh, is picked up uh, in the in the cornets uh, as well as the uh, trombones and euphonium, um, uh, and it's just a kind of a unifying moment here. Lovely tenderness through that solid harmony. Um, we're on a diminuendo leading up to uh, the final phrase of the tune, which is treated as a cornet solo. Um, because I suppose it is—it is a solitary thing. It's—it's—it is something that uh, only a person can make for themselves, and that uh, solo quality there um, is, is demonstrating, I think, that moment.
0: So the final section, sort of letter R through to the end, uh, builds up here with these strong uh, crotchet chords. So we almost sort of think the music's gonna be building for big traditional brass band, uh, all guns blaring sort of ending, but then the music just fades away. Uh, could you talk us through perhaps why why it fades away and we don't have that traditional big blaring ending and just how it all treats, treats this uh, conclusion to the music?
2: yeah I see the the big fanfare moment at r i I believe I can picture the subject of this piece looking um and approaching the pearly gates in heaven and um so I see this kind of uh letter r as a connection between the person who has just been saved uh meeting up with the Lord himself entering through the gates into heaven. And that's that's how I see that uh, big moment. It's kind of a, uh, it's a statement because it, even the big moment starts at mezzo forte, crescendo. Um, and, and so it's not until bar five in letter R that that is the point of that's it. The, uh, the, the subject is with the Lord in heaven and uh, the meeting of a completely free man meeting with the Lord. As the uh, the Lord and the subject just walking into heaven, um, and the onlooker, the listener, is standing at the standing at the gates, just watching them go into eternity. Um, and so um, the, the the calmness of this still, still with thee, just carries on prevailing through all of this. And uh, the, whole, uh, the whole purpose of this piece is just to remind us all that uh, the Lord is there and his presence is eternal. And, uh, and so eternity, right at the end of this, is there. Um, and about the last 14, 15 bars or so, that's, that's the Lord and the subject of this piece. Just walking very calmly, very quietly, very gently into eternity. And uh, it's a lovely moment. And the ending, um, it's a pianissimo ending. This is a, a very reflective ending. We don't get many pieces that uh, don't finish with a big chord. Um, but uh, this is one. Romans 8 is another, of course. Uh, but um, this is a just a kind of a, a drifting off into eternity. It's, it's just leaving this 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 place called Earth. It's leaving everything behind, and it's walking uh, with the Lord, um, and that's how that's how I see it. It's just uh, the cornets and the trombones just standing very static on that chord, still with thee. You could you could put those three words to the uh, to the last four bars of this tune still with the still and that's how it finishes beautifully reflective
1: and a beautiful moment
0: Wonderful and uh, shame to break break the moment there, but uh, thank you ever so much for your time talking through that piece. Uh, wonderful music and a wonderful truth and and story there behind the music. And I really appreciate you explaining that to us. Thanks again, Richard, for talking us through The Eternal Presence by Eric Ball. If you enjoyed listening to Richard's voice like I did, then you'll be pleased to know Richard will be joining us in a future episode and telling us a little bit about his life, his faith and his music. But now it's time for another reoccurring feature of Fully Scored and that is Bandmastermind at Home. For those that don't know what Bandmastermind at Home is, it's time for you to get involved and show off your band knowledge nerdery. I'm going to play a short excerpt from a piece of Salvation Army brass band music. All you've got to do is let me know what the piece is and for the extra bonus brownie points for this episode, what CD this recording's taken from. You can let us know on our Facebook page, our Twitter page or our Instagram page. And of course, if you're not following them already, then go give them a big hearty like. But now, virtual drum roll, please, for it's time to announce the results of last episode's Band Mastermind at Home winners. Congratulations to Thomas Grimshaw for correctly guessing that the score notes were taken from Leslie Condon's Song of the Eternal. Well done to runner-up Darren Waterworth, who also guessed the same correct answer. Well done to you both. Here's this episode's episode. <laughs> you know what that piece is, then drop us a message on our Facebook page, Instagram page or even our Twitter page. If you're the first or even the runner-up to let us know, then you'll get a mention in the next episode. Well, this brings us on to our final segment of the podcast, the ever-favourite Band Mastermind. Dorothy, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds, the exact time it takes the ISB to play Jubilee, with a few (laughs) repeats taken out, to answer as many of these following questions correctly as you can. Oh, Brilliant. So, Dorothy Gates, are you ready to play Band Mastermind?
1: Yes, I'm ready.
0: Excellent. Then your time starts. Now, George Marshall was the bandmaster of which North East England core? I can't remember. Pass. Okay, which city is Charles Fry considered the first SA bandmaster buried in?
1: Let's say not in him.
0: Okay, incorrect I'm afraid. We'll move on to the next question. Which Eric Ball song is featured in Kevin, Kevin Norbury's work, Aboard?
1: The, the female voice piece. Uh, there. It was scored for three female voices. I can't remember.
0: Okay, we'll move Pass. on. Published in 1966, who is the author of the book Play the Music Play, A History of Salvation Army Bands?
1: Pass. I have the book.
0: <laughs> okay. <laughs> what is the title of the march which was named after the National School of Music based in Kent, England, and composed by Norman Bearcroft? Corbin Hall. Correct. Jeffrey Nobbs, the composer of Prelude on Lavenham, uh, was one time the bandmaster of which core band? Pass. Okay. Ray Bose was also the bandmaster of which core band based in North London? Hendon? Uh, incorrect, I'm afraid. What are the names of the two Venables brothers who currently sit principal cornet in the New York and Canadian staff bands, respectively?
1: Marcus and Brinley.
0: Correct, and our time for one more question. What is the journal number of "Just as I Am" by Wilfred Eaton?
1: <laughs> two seventy something. Uh,
0: not quite, I'm afraid. Well, that gives you a total of two points, which for bandmastermind is not a bad score at all. We'll just go through the answers of the questions you didn't quite get correct there. So George Marshall was a bandmaster of South Shields, North East England. All right. <laughs> that's all right. Uh, the city which Charles Fry is buried in is Glasgow. The, the Eric Ball song that's featured in Kevin Norbury's work or bard was Morning Song. Published in 1966, the author of Play the Music Play, A History of Salvation Army Bands, was Brindley Boone. Oh. And Geoffrey Nobes, the composer of Lavenham, was one time the bandmaster of the Portsmouth Corps. Ooh. Ray Bowes was also the bandmaster of the Harlsen Call in North London. And the final question, the number that just as I am is in the journal is 1291 number one. A tricky question there.
1: 1291, <laughs> well, yeah, whatever. There we go.
0: <laughs> Great. Well, thank you ever so much for joining us in the interview today and playing bandmastermind.
1: You're welcome. It was my pleasure, I think. <laughs>
0: Hopefully it wasn't too much of a terrifying experience.
1: (laughs) That's the bandmaster, (laughs) man.
0: Well, unfortunately, that brings once again this episode of Fully Scored to its natural conclusion. Don't forget, if you're listening to us on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or Raycast, click subscribe so you're automatically notified when our next episode is dropped. If you haven't already, go follow us on Facebook, tweet us on Twitter and um, investigate us on Instagram. Simply search Fully Scored and you'll be sure to find us there. And if social media's not your thing, then why not just be social and tell your friends, family, colleagues and neighbours all about our podcast. You never know, they might even enjoy it. Thank you to all those involved in making this podcast happen. Thanks to Dorothy and Richard for coming on, giving up your time and chatting to me. I'm sure those at home have thoroughly enjoyed hearing from you both. So thanks again. Thanks also go to Simon Gash, our producer, for spiffingly slicing all the segments together. Thank you also to you, the listener. You've done a marvellous job, especially if you've made it this far. Don't forget to feedback what you thought of this episode and we'll see you in episode 19. Goodbye and God bless.